0: The G-Stream is a Mickey G-Production.
1: On this episode of The G-Stream, we welcome renowned author, art historian, and photographer, Dr. Paul Kudinaris. Dr. Kudinaris is the author of Heavenly Bodies, Cult Treasures, and Spectacular Saints from the Catacombs, A Cat's Tale. A journey through feline history. The empire of death. a cultural history of ossuaries and charnel houses. Memento mori, the dead among us. If you haven't read any of Dr. Kudanars' books, you'll find the link to purchase them on our website, thegstream.com. You'll also find a link to his Instagram account. Be sure to give him a follow.
0: Hey there, you Hello. are welcome.
2: Hey, welcome, uh,
1: Bob.
3: This is you Mickey know, G. Previously hey, said that it had already ended.
1: Oh, really? Oh, that we we're doing a test run and then we yeah. ended it. That's what happened. That's so, all good. Welcome. Thank you for joining us here on GStream. I'm Mickey G. And I'm here with my lovely wife Jenny.
2: Hi.
1: Um, Hi. Um, for those of you out there that don't know, this is Dr. Paul Kudinaris. He's author art historian and photographer. He's written books like Heavenly Bodies, Cat's Tale, History of Cats, and Empire of Death. You actually credit the Cat's Tale, History of Cats, uh, to your cat. <laughs> I love uh, it
3: because we have six cats ourselves. That is correct. She is the titular author. Uh, I had something of a go-around with the publisher about that. They didn't like it at first, but it's written in her voice, and they thought that was fair. So so what they did is <laughs> was compromise. As a compromise, I mean, she she kind of is the author because she's the model in all the photos. And uh, and she's a first-class cosplay model, and it's written <laughs> in her voice. <laughs> I would not have started studying feline history were it not for her. So the compromise...
0: I, I, yeah. I have to ask you a question. Yeah. How do you get the cat to wear the costumes?
2: <laughs> Everyone
0: that question
3: and they're asking it the wrong way um, because okay. the truth is you can't get the cat to wear the costumes they have to want to and anyone <laughs> who's ever tried to put a costume on a cat knows this you can't get,
2: yeah.
3: you cannot get a cat to do anything they don't want to do you can kind of negotiate it with them a little bit <laughs> and try to convince yeah. them it's in there it's something that they'd like um for those who don't know uh what we're talking about who haven't seen the photos so i wrote a book called a cat's Tale*. it's kind of a, a double entendre on the name it's tail t-a-i-l but it's really a the story of feline history i'm sorry it's tail t-a-l-e not t-a-i-l but you know a cats in other words a cat story uh, yeah. but um it's, it's the story of feline history as told from the perspective of a cat, and it basically amounts to retelling human history as a cat might interpret it and putting back, uh, you know, the famous cats into their place and giving recognition for their accomplishments. And it's illustrated throughout with cosplay photos of my cat in, in costume from the areas she's discussing. So she appears as, you know, Cleopatra or Nefertiti. She appears as Napoleon throughout the story, you know, all these different historical characters. And, um, it is unusual that she's willing to do this. If you look at the pictures, she's really a superb model. Um, she was yeah. always the she was the middle cat of three. And you know, and if you have three animals, you'll kind of know that there's like a middle child syndrome. Yes. The <laughs> you know I mean? older one is always it's like you're the senior, so you have place of pride. And the younger one, the youngest one, even if they're 10 years old, the youngest one is always the kitten or the pup. You know, the youngest one. And, so the, yeah. and yes, the middle we. one is always kind of stuck there. And so she really, she really loves me. And she really, really wanted attention. And because I'm a photographer, she figured it out on her own. That you know, if that uh, you know, anyone with a camera who owns animals is gonna take pictures of their animals. And she just turned it on. It it just started over time. She just started learning how to pose. And I would go to take pictures of the cats, and I'd be like, "Yeah, I'll just take your picture again. You guys just (laughs) go away." It was kind of like if you had a basketball team and Michael Jordan was there. It was like kind of yeah. Let's not be fair about this. Or <laughs> that. You're better, you're better.
0: Well, and, I'll tell you and, what. Yeah. What I love about Baba and all the the wonderful photos you've taken with her is she looks so relaxed. She looks like she wants to be the model, and it's right. just beautiful. Well, it's true and and
3: she uh, like i said you can't make them do it if they don't want to do it she wants to do it and and what i was going to say is i think it really started for her as a bonding thing with me cuz she figured it out she's very smart obviously and she kind of figured it out it's like if i play this game and if i do this right and if i take these pictures uh you know and, uh, i'm the one who's going to get all the attention and i'm going to be the one and i really think it is that She has this ability, you know. People will say it's like, "Whoa, she's really incredible!" Like she understands the character of Napoleon. It's like, no, she doesn't. She's a cat. (laughs) I (laughs) am Napoleon, and somehow I kind of uh, she reads me and she knows me so well that she understands what I want oftentimes more than I do because. A lot of times I would approach those photos with an idea. This is what I want it to look like. And she wouldn't give me the look. And I would start to get frustrated. And then I'd look at the photos and it's like, oh yeah, your idea is actually better than mine. (laughs) It's a
0: beautiful bond. It's a beautiful connection. I don't consider
3: uh, really a photography project. I consider it more... uh, you know uh, kind of exercise in interspecies communication because somehow she has to read the signals from me that I cannot give verbally and she knows because there were times when we would be working on photos intensively and we just weren't getting it and we had this box like a platform that I put her on you know to model and yeah I- I would take her off the box and put her on the ground be like, okay, let's just take a break and we'll try again this afternoon. And she would jump back up on the box and stare at me like she knew it wasn't (laughs) right. No, let's do this right. So I relate
1: 100%. We have a senior cat. His name is Mikey. He does the same. I have a photo cube. I do some photography myself. He'll jump into the box. And start posing. Yeah, uh, and he's the the oldest, so he's like the, the the king. Meow. We actually have six cats. Yeah, but each yeah, one cool. has a unique personality. But Mikey uh, is so intelligent and communicates so well that I can relate to what you're saying with your cat. They do have a oh. language uh, that so, isn't spoken.
3: I've always said that you know these these animals are they are reflections of us. They're manifestations of our personality. You know. And so I, it's really yeah. not surprising that you get these kinds of nonverbal communication relationships because they're really they they're a part of you. You know, I have three cats, and I can see a distinct part of my personality in each of them. They're all very different, but they all represent different aspects of me. And I've always said this that I think you can judge a person by their animals. You know, it's like. Kind of like, if you really want the facade of a person stripped away, start looking at their animals because those animals are a reflection of them. If you have a good animal, you've probably got a good person under there somewhere.
0: Oh yes. yeah, you know, as I said, we um we are the we we have six rescue cats, and mm-hmm. each one of them is very unique in their personality. They're very unique in everything, but. The bond that you have with each, with each one is unique and special. Yes. And I think from your Instagram page, I think that's why I get so choked up when I see when you when you give ceremony to animals that have died for no yeah. one that's seen it. I'm going to tell you right now, Paul, I will yeah. cry more over that photo than I would at a human's funeral.
1: <laughs> it's sad. Was, well, that's what we're surrounded with we actually have a couple of loppy eared bunnies too on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but man. those,
0: but those, that photography you do on Instagram, man, it's, it's, it just, it grabs me. It
3: does. For it communicates I live out in the desert. Um, you know, during most of the pandemic, I was living in the California desert. Then I moved to Nevada. Now I'm in Arizona, but it's consistently been the desert. And there's so much roadkill here and so many people dumping unwanted pets out in the desert who wind up as roadkill. That I started uh, quite some time back in just pulling them off the street and giving them memorials, you know, giving them giving them the respect of a funeral that they really should have had all along. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I admire I that. Also that. You know, um, it is not. I don't think it's unusual for people to be more touched by the death of an animal than they are over the death of a person. Just because, and I know, you know, I've I've actually, you know, my next book is going to be on the history of Pet cemeteries. So I really know a lot of this material and I've been researching it for years. And when people die, we have this entire... Rhetoric and this entire system of social ritual that, you know, even subtly kind of exists over time has been developed to help us find closure and a path forward and we don't have that with animals when, when an animal dies you're kind of left on your own to figure out what to do And what to feel and how to find closure and how to find a path forward and so it can be much more traumatizing because it's harder it's harder when an animal dies to release the grief. Yes,
0: yes. Yes. I, I, I agree. I think that's, that's because, um, in our society, it's when we had, uh, one of our pets that passed, um, we were broken up, but other people would say things like, it's just an animal. And it's like, no, no, no it, it wasn't."
3: That, that's the weird part of it because it The vast majority of people in this country, the vast majority have owned pets and have been through this. So they understand, yet the rhetoric continues to be like, well, you shouldn't feel that way. It's just an animal. There's almost kind of a guilt that comes along for feeling too touched by the death of an animal, despite the fact that the vast majority of people in society understand it. And it's... It is, um, it's descended from this, you know, very lengthy history in Western culture of creating this division among species with human beings, of course, being at the top. Right. And And this idea, which is really, if you go back and look at early Christianity and biblical sources, this idea that humans have a soul and animals are kind of soulless, you know? Right. It's, you know, I I can't argue that anyone has a soul. I can't say that humans do or not. I don't know that that's true. But right. but you look at if you go back and look at the early Christian world, and you go back and you look at the Old Testament, and you look at original translations of the Book of Genesis, there is no actual discrimination in what what God is claimed to have breathed into into animals and breathed into man. It's the same word. It's this word nephesh, which means breath, the breath of life. And so later got changed to this idea that we're soul, that, you know, animals are kind of soulless. But I um, I liken it to Cinderella's coach. You know, like how Cinderella's coach is this magical thing created from a pumpkin, and at the stroke of midnight, it just, it suddenly, it's gone, and it turns back into a pumpkin, and everything's ruined. And it's kind of like that with pets, that they're allowed to, to live as members of our family. I don't consider pets to be, you know, ha- having looked at so much of this material, I don't really consider them to be animals. They exist in this liminal space where they, to the people who love them, they're as much human as they are animals.
0: 100%. And, yes, percent
3: yes. Yes, yes, they're allowed to live as family members, they're allowed to be treated as family members with that exact same respect, yet somehow they're not allowed to die as family members. And at exactly. that moment, when they pass, it's like Cinderella's coach. It's like the clock has struck midnight. It reverts into base material. You know, it's like it's now, this, it's now this, this living, loving family member at the stroke of the clock, at the last, at the last bell, has reverted I- to the insensate brute.
0: Now and can, it's, I,
3: it's can I
0: can I ask you? Yeah. Well, let me ask you one question. So when you when you when you come across these animals, and I, it's it's so hard for me to call them roadkill because every time I do see something like that, it as I said it it gets to me. But when you come across them, is it difficult for you?
3: Oh, you mean <laughs> difficult in what way? You mean like you know, sitting there and knowing
0: that that maybe. Yeah, I mean, like you know, like knowing that maybe this was an animal that someone abandoned, or you know, it's it's I, I you know. I have a
1: question. What what are the emotions that you feel? When
3: yeah. You that? Well. You know, I I have been through this so many times because you have to understand that this is not just a photo series. For You know, there are a lot of them that I can't show online just because of the level of degradation of the animal and so forth. I don't still offer some rituals for them. You know, I'll pull over and give them a little flower or something and say something. And so, I mean, I have, and I have to usually pull them off the road because you have to understand they're usually killed out in the lane and I have to get them, first of all, because I don't want them to keep being hit and run over right. and over again. And also, if I'm going to make some kind of tribute to them, I can't get myself killed either. That's really counterproductive. So I usually yeah, exactly. <laughs> have to So um, I have done so many of these, like hundreds upon hundreds by now, that I don't think anymore I have an initial emotional response to it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's like there is emotion to it, and that usually comes when I start setting up to take a photo. If I'm taking the photo, the emotion usually comes then because then I'm wondering, like, who were you? What happened yeah. to you? How did you wind up here? What was your life? You, you know? and that usually comes through in the caption because a lot of my captions are kind of emotional. But um, yeah, I know. I think my original, I think my initial response at this point in time is more just in terms of, of you know the practical aspect of it rather than the emotional aspect like damn it, there's another dog. okay, how am I getting you off the road? I have to get you out of there before you're hit again. So it's usually at this point it's more of a practical practical right yeah, exactly
0: right. I now, gotcha. when it,
3: when it
1: comes uh, that time when we lose our own animals, it's going to be much different I'm sure. Uh, me that happened with me as a first responder with humans, you know, so many like hundreds of them that uh, there's lives to save, but there's lives that are lost, and you just have to you you go through it and and, and you think about it a little bit, but there's more of a de- not a detachment, there's an attachment, but you're mm-hmm. much more attached to their personal family member, like one of your own animals. Boy, I cried like crazy when we lost our uh, lop-eared bunny. Yeah. yeah, we had to put a cat to sleep. Oh my god, I I was just. I was a wreck. <laughs> My wife, she's gonna do it next time. <laughs> it just really
0: yeah, it's, to it's difficult. Now I'll tell you what. I your your book Heavenly Bodies. I love that book. Absolutely love okay. it. Um, and because I, I grew up Catholic, so I've always oh, kind yeah. of known about the catacomb saints.
3: Are, are you German?
0: Uh, part yes.
3: Okay. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah, a, it's so, a very German, it's a very German thing.
0: Yeah, it is. I'll tell you what it's, it's, it, it was something I, my great grandmother, she was, she, she had a photo of one of them and I can't remember what it was, but I knew growing up, I, I had known about them. Um, and of course, you know, Catholics, we have a saint for pretty much anything and everything. Um, even the fake ones, much like the catacomb saints. Um, but I was, I was, I don't think I realized the depth of, of what the Catholic Church had done to kind of influence a Protestant Germany until I really saw your book and the amount of of time that they took to dress the bodies, to jewel the bodies, to do all this, um, you know, it this, this odd ceremony, you know, and... I, I can't even imagine, you know, what your first thought was seeing this in person.
3: Right. Well, we should probably explain for people listening who don't know exactly what we're talking about that what what she's calling the catacomb saint. It's the subject of my book, Heavenly Bodies, and um, during the pro- after the Protestant Reformation was in high swing, and and especially in these kind of battleground areas like Germany and Austria and Switzerland, where they were sacking a lot of churches. Um, the Catholic Church had responded by kind of trying to refound these churches with a new set of relics, were, which were discovered in Rome in the catacombs. These kind of like, but full skeletal relics that they would send to Northern Europe and completely cover these kind of like Baroque era fantasy skeletons, completely covered in jewels. They're the finest work of art ever created in human bone. Uh, they're really extraordinary i mean it is literally a full skeleton standing in front of you you know completely covered in jewels it's, it's an incredible thing to see and so you know my first reaction to those it started when i was working on my book the empire of death which was a history of charnel houses and ossuaries. and towards the end of that book <coughs> i would sometimes go to visit churches in remote areas of germany to photograph their bone rooms and to photograph their ossuary and all the skulls and bones they had collected and sometimes in the crypt, I would see like pushed over in the corner, in storage, like kind of hidden away, some old skeleton covered in jewels. I'd be like, oh, "Wait, wait a minute, who's that guy? What's going on?" <laughs> and so, you know, and I had, it's so I had already known about them, and there were a couple of them that did make their way into the Empire of Death. But by the time I was finishing that book, I already knew that those skeletons were the subject of the next book. And I had started already, as I had been traveling to to photograph the bone houses, I had already started photographing those when I had found them. And around the time the, the first book came out, I was in London to meet with the publisher about some stuff on the first book. And I walked into the commissioning editor's office and I had just, I, you know, put a stack of these photos on his desk, and I pointed at them. I was like, "That's the next book. Look at them." And he kind of looks at these photos. And he's like, "Yeah, okay." Uh, kind of, you know, hit the buzzer. He's like, "Yeah, let's just get you a contract. I don't know what the hell this means to do. do it because um, <laughs> they're so sensational." Yeah.
2: yeah,
0: yeah. Now, did when you started doing um, all of these books and 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 all of these books surrounding the ceremony of death. Did it reshape the way that you yourself looked at death? Um. Well, not really. The, well,
3: to an extent, it's, you know, we use the term death and dying and dead so frequently that I don't think we often pause to philosophically understand exactly what we're talking about. I will say that it took me... 10 years and three books before I myself even really understood what I meant when I used the term death. So, you know, even the first, I would say when I wrote the, I've written three books about the subject. I would say when I wrote the first two books, I didn't even really understand the term from my perspective. And what I eventually came up with, what really made sense to me when I was working on my third death book, Memento Mori, is that death is you know dying is a physical act and you know being dead is this absence of life and it's this pretty permanent condition and death though is this border it's kind of like this this liminal zone that separates two different groups the you know the living and the dead that could potentially socialize Mm -hmm. but death is this you know it's this border or this wall between us And looking at it that way, looking at it as a border or a boundary rather, and, you know, detaching it from the physical act of dying allowed me to understand how death is really very, very uh, relative culture to culture. And so, you know, I would go to cultures in Asia where I would say, you know, death was a very... Permeable border. You know, that that border wall was open. The gates were open between the living and the dead, places in Asia and South America, Latin America, where there is this constant dialogue back and forth. The dead are really invited. To remain within society of the living. You know, there's right.
2: still, yes. I see,
3: I see. and then, you know, and like come back to Western culture where those gates are closed. And, you know, then I was able to look at death as a border being positioned somewhere else or being, you know, like this kind of impermeable wall. So it did change my, it changed, it, it, I wouldn't say it changed my impression of death i think it formed it because i don't think i really understood what i even meant when i was using the term until like i say really about 10 years later studying this stuff and really understanding how death functions within a society detached from from the the physical act of dying
0: right right
3: so your perception on death now is
1: um how would you
0: describe it
1: Define it now
3: Death is death is not a physical act dying is a physical act death is this is a border between these you know these two groups the living and the dead and it can be right. placed in many different places and it can be passable or impassable i think that we are so detached from the idea of you know right. dying a good death or you know allowing the dead to continue to have a place among the living in a meaningful way that we, you know, I talk to people who will say things like, "Oh, you know, I am a death expert as well." I was like, "Okay, what do you, what do you work on?" They're like, "Oh, uh, what does this- that
0: even mean?" Yeah. It's
3: like, okay, um, but a Victorian tombstone is not death. You right. know, it's a, it's a physical object that surrounds, you know, the act of dying, but it's not death. Yeah, you know, it's, it's the, the ceremony. It. Yes, it's the it's part of the ceremony, it you know, really understanding death and really thinking about it is the absolute hardest thing we can do as a human being. Uh, and I would say, from my perspective, that most religions that exist and have prospered in the world have really fundamentally been concerned solely at first and in their base with the question of what happens when we die? What is death? And where, right. where
0: is the border? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've I've always um, looked at the act of dying because I, I remember my grandfather saying to me that the fact that we're even alive is just weird. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird.
3: They're both, you know, they're both pretty comprehensible.
0: Right. And I mean, it's, it's, I've always felt, you know, and this kind of, I guess, goes against my, my, the Catholic roots, but I feel like, you know, we're, it's just a change of energy, you know, Mm. because the world and everything's interconnected The death birth, it's all just a change in the energy.
3: Well, we're all dying. And this is the weird thing that people tend to not understand um, is that, you know, It's like you'll get people who are diagnosed with a disease, and suddenly they'll like my mother was one of them, tragically for her. You know, she went to to the doctor one day and she had this cough she couldn't get rid of and it was getting worse. And she went to the doctor one day, and the doctor told her she had, you know, terminal cancer. And she came home and suddenly she was dying. But in you know, in truth, we're all dying. The act of living and the act of dying are inseparable.
2: Exactly. Um, exactly.
3: and so you know, I think to me, in terms of you know what is sometimes called socially the death positive movement, I think for me, you know living a death positive lifestyle involves understanding that we are both living and dying at the same time. And life is this incredible gift. So, you know, make the most of it and make it meaningful and understand, you know, this, this temporal constraint that we're under. You are in the act of dying, but you're also in the act of living. And they are both in their way a gift.
0: Right.
1: Let me tell you, as a man who has witnessed much of that, I really appreciate your acute Observation and your perception. I'm going to take ownership. I'm going to use that. It, it, I think, it helps me define it by the way you say that. That border. Uh, I think that's existed in my mind too because I've had to deal with it. That is that border, and my and I lost my mother the same way.
2: Yeah. Sorry
3: for your loss there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but it's a perfect, you know, my, you know, my mother's reaction was a perfect example of the problem we have in Western culture with not understanding that she has been dying all along. And, you know, and this is part of the tragedy of it, I think, in Western culture, because people do not understand that they're living and dying simultaneously. So when the doctor points out, all the doctor is doing when he talks to my mother and tells her she's terminally ill. All he's doing is pointing out that there is, you know, that, you know, the clock that has been running all along now has a very specific time at which it's going to end. But she's still living. And you get a lot of people, a lot of people, tragically, not all of them. I've seen some people who've really been wonderful about this. but A lot of people, tragically, who just kind of shut down. They They go from the act of living to the act of dying. And right. that yes was yeah, almost yeah. Kind of and I and I hate to say this and I, I I'm not trying to sound callous about my mother. I'm just trying exactly. to give you the from watching her. When she went to the doctor and he diagnosed her, she at that point she effectively did die because she lost stopped the living. She lost the ability yeah. to live. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You're right. You're right. It's 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 when there's a clock put on it that everyone starts to look at it differently. When it's actually the been always, the
3: clock's always been running.
0: The yeah, exactly, running. exactly. You
3: know, it's like we get a certain number of breaths and we get a certain number of heartbeats. The clock has always been running, and I don't know, you know, if if part of it, it's you know, it's interconnected to so many things. You know, to what extent is our in, To what extent is capitalism itself really connected to this kind of fallacy, this idea, you know, there is is this theory, and I don't know that I completely buy it, but there's this theory that, you know, capitalism itself is this kind of gigantic, uh, you know, um, eternity plot. That that everything you do and everything you buy and, and everything you demonstrate about yourself in this kind of narcissistic capitalist society is really kind of a part of a legacy project. It's like that's right. why you get, you know, that's why you get the personalized license plate. And that's why you're driving the, you know, the, the car that you really couldn't afford to buy. It's really all kind of a legacy project.
0: Right, yeah. right. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Now, when you were when you were doing the photographs and the stuff for Heavenly Bodies, and yes. I, I was reading about how you know many of them you know were were tossed away you know eventually, yes. and um, uh, many were redressed to the nineteenth century style of clothing. Now, when you were were seeing some of these in any areas that you visited, were any of these so called sta- saints still revered, or are they just all just hidden? Well,
3: okay, Um, again, um, this is, you know, to to give a little backstory to the people listening who don't know about the subject matter, Um, you know, these these saints who were not technically saints, they were just called that, they were skeletons taken from the Roman catacombs, thought to be martyrs, Um, you know, they were very popular when they first arrived in their towns in Germany, in the Baroque era, Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, most of them went there. They were very popular, they were absolutely revered, they became the new patrons of the town, yet by the 19th century, they had really fallen out of favor. You know, With the Enlightenment, they were considered superstitious and kind of like, you know people have been saying Catholicism is a death cult, and boy, we're really proving it by putting a jeweled skeleton in the church, and so they fell out of favor. A lot of them were removed. Uh, some of them, when monasteries would be secularized, were kind of torn apart and sold for scrap. Um, so were any of these still, by now, or are they still revered? I'll say this. A lot of them are still in their churches. They're still in their churches um, where they've always been, and they're given place of pride. But it's more a nod to local history and local okay. tradition. So, for instance, St. Mundisha is still in Munich, in the Peterskerke, where she's always been, Uh, Back in the day, she was the patron saint of spinsters and unmarried women would come in and pray in front of her, you know, to get a husband. She's still in her. She's still revered. People in Munich understand people in Catholic Munich at the Peterskirche understand her importance in spiritual life in the town but no one's praying in front of her anymore looking for a husband so they are still revered but on the level of being important parts of local tradition rather than really being active parts of local spiritual life i got you yeah.
0: i got you yeah that that yeah that's and and the you know the the photos you took i mean to be able to see um in the book, you know, Heavenly Bodies, to be able to see these photographs and how elaborate they are. I mean, they are gorgeous pieces of history. They mm-hmm. really are. You're a great no, photographer. The by the way. When
1: did that you start your really photography? Good. You're really good. You have a great eye. I really enjoy your photography. How long have you been doing that?
3: Oh well, I was going to oh, say that you know what what she said is you know part of the reason I wanted to do that book was to create a new context in which to understand those skeletons. Yeah because, okay. you know, instead of as failed ecclesiastic objects, I think we're now at a point where we can appreciate them as works of art, because they are the finest works of art ever created in human bone, so it was like part of the, the that project in that book was really not just to tell their history, but to recontextualize them. It's like, let's look at them now as works of art, rather than as failed ecclesiastic objects that need to be thrown away, and I, I very much appreciate you uh, crediting the photography, because that <laughs> that project in particular was really really hard to do because most of the skeletons are you know they were they were placed in altars hundreds of years ago and you know the altar itself may have been removed and placed in storage they're not just standing there in front of you right. Right. they're usually trapped behind you know like 300 year old sheets of glass that have divots in them and they're very dirty and they're dirty on the inside. And it's impossible to open those up without destroying them. So it was very hard to photograph that project. I had, uh, I remember, uh, when that book first came out, um, uh, you know, when when the death books, each of them, when they came out, we'd do a gallery show of the photos as a book, release, you know, and I, you know, I do a book signing, we do a gallery show of some of the photos. And the gallery where we we're doing the show for Heavenly Bodies called me up and he said, yeah, there's this guy who wants to get in touch with you. And I, I, I won't name the guy, but he was a famous photographer from the 70s who had worked for with Warhol at one time. So like a really big name and I was like, well, yeah, obviously, you know, put the guy in touch with me. And so he calls me up and says, I have a question for you. I'm looking at these photos, how the hell did you do it? Because I had traveled in Germany in the 70s and I had seen these things and I wanted to do a book about them and I couldn't figure out how to photograph them because they're so hard to photograph. So it was really mm-hmm. a very big project to photograph. I had basically researched the entire history of camera lenses for the one exact lens that would allow me to you wow. know, stand stand really far away but still get macro shots. It was a 400 millimeter close focusing macro lens because I had to get far enough away to normalize perspective and with a, a thin enough depth of field to not capture all the reflections and junk on the glass. It was very difficult. And then this lens, as it turns out, can't really be used on any kind of modern camera. And I had to adapt it and i had to build my own adapter for it and i had to take an, wow. a, a grinder and grind away some electrical contacts wow. because it was really weird like electrical flux that after a few photos would throw the camera into an error mode it was really complicated
1: that's impressive that's very impressive i uh, i appreciate that effort you synthesize your writing with the star very well and you' don't I, tell the story very well
0: yeah i mean it's 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 beautiful now i i also have your uh book empire death but this is this is funny so it comes in the mail and it's yeah. shrink-wrapped and i'm such a bibliophile that i can't open that so i'm gonna have to order a used one
2: <laughs>
0: okay <laughs> <laughs> it's i mean it came so perfect
2: that's
3: up to you um
0: <laughs> i, just I don't,
3: can't i'm not really sure what to
0: say about that i know i well, i um, i I am, I'm one of these weird people who I like keep my books so perfect.
3: Mm.
0: And so I was looking forward to reading it and I got it off Amazon and it comes and it's so beautiful and the shrink wrap and everything. And I went, oh shit, now I'm going to have to buy a used copy. Yeah. So he has a I degree can read in
1: archaeology. That's kind of
3: especially so- <laughs> <preserve it>. yeah.
0: <laughs> you, you know, I'll tell you a couple funny things about that book.
3: Um, it's that book since it's since you've still got it shrink wrapped and you haven't looked inside I of it. Can't. <laughs> it's um, it's the, you know i got i got a lot of grief on that book because a lot of it's beautifully done it is you know the the design the of the, the, the design on that book is really first rate it was done by uh, a designer named Jonathan Barnbrook in London. Who is he's won like Grammy awards for album design. He's a prose pro. He's written like textbooks on design. Wow, Barnbrook really. Barnbrook is really good, he was the right guy for that project. He's a great guy because he. I understand him because Jonathan Barnbrook likes cats and he likes death and cemeteries. You know, yeah. he's the right guy to work with I me, mean, and Barnbrook. Um, Anyway, did like his studio did that? And they did a, a smash-up job with it, but they used this type font, which was very small. And if you look at the design, it, it you know it makes it aesthetically perfect. But I got so many complaints, and that was the one big knock on this book was a, like these. There were these people writing these reviews for a while. It was like what they should ship this book with a magnifying glass for anyone who wants to read it and stuff. Um, yes. well, that was funny um the the design is perfect but we had a lot of people complaining about the pipe ah well
0: yeah, i'll so. tell you what the you know when it came and it shrink wrapped and one of the most beautiful covers you know it's just i mean it's gorgeous so as soon as i get a used copy i'll be up to date I don't really
3: think you need a magnifying glass to read it. I never had a problem. I don't. I don't know. Maybe we need. Maybe these are people who are just reading too much and their eyes are shot. I don't know. There,
0: there we go. There we go. There Let's we go.
3: get some cheaters. Yeah. Go get some, get some cheaters. Yeah. <laughs> like, right.
0: Exactly.
3: Good, yeah. So,
0: <laughs> when are you going to um, be releasing the the next book, the one on pet cemeteries?
3: Well, um, you know, I've been working on this for, I kid you not, about ten years. I had originally, when my third book *Memento Mori* had come out, I had wanted immediately to transition into a book about pet cemeteries because I already had all the notes done and the bulk of the photos. Um, if you know, if you go back to old interviews that I've done, you know, when that book, when that third book came out, people would say, "What are you working on next?" And I'd tell them a book about pet cemeteries. Eventually, the cat book jumped that because the cat book became, you know, like you know, pun intended, a pet project because I could work on it. (laughs) And so, you know, it was just like, it was really a labor of love, but I had never stopped working on the Pet cemetery book. Um, When the cat book came out, I really believed that, well, after I turned the cat book in, you know, there's a big process, especially with photo heavy books before they come out. It's a very lengthy process. I believed when the cat book came out, That by the time it came out, I would already have the Pet Cemetery book done and turned in with a publisher. And I haven't even pitched it yet because then the pandemic came. And I couldn't travel to research. I couldn't travel to complete the rest of the photos. And so I kind of got thrown back at least another two years. At this point, the bulk of the text is written and... I am in the process, beginning in the process of talking to some people about pitching it. So, but from there, you know, it could be another, you know, if I, even if I signed a contract tomorrow, it could take what another eight months before I'm actually. And yes. then you've got another year probably going through process before it comes out. You know, and books are like movies. Books are scheduled for certain times, so right. the book may be perfectly ready to go, but the publisher might decide, you know, well, this is a this is a good gift book, so we're going to wait till the Christmas after or something. So it, it could be two years, unfortunately.
0: Right. So when when you do the Pet Cemetery book, is this going to be based on pet, pet cemeteries in the United States or global or It's going to have to be
3: global because no
0: one's ever really done a
3: Pet cemetery book before. There are a couple, you know, there are tons of books about grief and animals. I don't think they're that helpful. Uh, to pet owners, mm-hmm. I read them all. I think in a way, uh, and I talked to an agent about this, I think in a way the Pet cemetery book might actually be more helpful because there's something about seeing the photos of what other people have done to commemorate their animals that I think is kind of healing because it makes you feel not alone.
2: Whereas yeah. reading
3: the leaving books kind of does make you feel alone and confused. Um, And yeah, I'm sorry. What was the
0: question? (laughs) Well, you know what I was was wondering about is is oh,
3: oh, what's the scope of it? Yeah, okay. Well, I think the Pet Cemetery book is going to have to be like the Pet Cemetery book of the Pet Cemetery version of Empire of Death. Right. No one had done a Charnel House book before, and so you really have to start kind of covering, you know, the macrocosm and then you know maybe some other brilliant person comes along later and does the microcosm you know um and there are a couple pet cemetery books that exist but they're not well known you know they might be about the history of a particular pet cemetery book and maybe they've sold 50 or 100 copies and there are there's a couple books that i found that you know they're just photo books from pet cemeteries but again they're they're not well known and they haven't sold many copies somebody needs to and i guess that person is me needs to start out by you know matching together the legitimate study of history on the on the on the macrocosm of you know, how pet cemeteries developed and why we have them, what was the impetus for having them, how they developed in different regions, and and then, you know, match this with the photos and then really get into the stories that are the most meaningful. So I think it's going to have to be a yeah, pretty think,
2: unique.
3: Yeah, I think with the, the new, like,
1: Web3 and the metaverse coming out where it's kind of a global thing, it's going to be a wonderful thing to be accessed worldwide and globally. Do you remember? How many languages are, are your books released in? Do you, do
3: um, okay. Uh, um, there are uh, so there are German versions of a couple of them. Uh, French versions for sure. Spanish on I think Spanish only on Empire of Death. Uh, Japanese. There's a Japanese of Empire of Death. The cat book has come out in Thai recently, which was because I love Thailand. It's one of my favorite countries to travel in. So that was like really a kick to get this package seeing, you know, my, you know, my cat's picture surrounded by these beautiful Thai characters. And it's also coming out, uh, another a German version of the cat book's coming out, one's coming out in Polish,
0: and one's coming out in Chinese. Oh, wow. That's great. That's very cool. That's very cool. Now, I wanted to ask you a question about pet cemeteries. Is this something that is, is is it just here in the States or is it also something that's popular worldwide?
3: The United States is ground zero for pet cemeteries for a lot of reasons. There's an insidious reason, of course, being that the United States can build a commodity out of anything, you know, even death. Um, right have with our cemetery industry but there's a lot more to it than that there are some subtleties there um it's you know pet cemeteries as we know them and this is something i have to get into in that book and i've already written this chapter a lot of times when you read these kind of like pseudo history of pet cemeteries and so forth you know they'll date them all the way back to ancient egypt you know and it's like right they have these catacombs with cat mummies and so forth it's like that's not really a pet cemetery. Yeah,
0: that's not a pet cemetery, no. No, it's not.
3: Well, first of all, it's really not because a lot of those animals, you know, certainly some of them lived with families and were loved.
0: Right, but, but a lot um, are
3: just sacrifices. A lot of sacrifices, exactly. They're sacrifices.
0: Um, but you
3: can't really have a pet cemetery until you have pets as we know them. And pets as we know them now, you know, And, like I say, there are a lot of subtleties to it, but, uh, you know, this is not to say that in the Renaissance, for instance, there were not people who lived with animals as family members and dearly loved them as family members. There certainly were, but pets are something different. Pets are a multi-billion dollar industry, for one. Yes. They are accepted by everyone in society. Back, you know, back in the days, if you really had that kind of a relationship with a dog or, or a cat would be even weirder, but it's like, well, okay, but it was considered kind of eccentric. Nobody questions it anymore. Pets are something that are understood across all levels of society. Even people who don't own them and haven't ever had the compulsion to have a pet don't question it. So, you know, having a pet is no longer eccentric. Having an, an that relationship with an animal is no longer eccentric. It really comes from the 19th century, um, you know, and there are various factors, especially, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution, for one thing, pushing everybody into the city, um, the cities and people living in closer quarters with these animals, their relationships will start to to develop with them in a very emotional way that they may that maybe. Was not the case in the countryside, and uh, at least in a more exacerbated way. Um, then you'll have you know, like the, the bourgeoisie, for instance, will start looking at animals as reflections of themselves. So your dog is a statement about you. And so they right. really start doting on these animals in a way people never have before. So the way we act towards them, the way we live with them, the way we feed them, you know, the, the, the way we eat, the way we spend money on them, all this stuff really starts in the 19th century. So to me, pet cemeteries do start in the 19th century. And the first Public pet cemetery, as we would know it, is in Hyde Park in London, and it's in the late 19th century. So that's really, I give some of the background in the classical world, but I also have to explain that, you know, in the chapter that I've written. I have to explain how there's really this differentiation. And so really the 19th century kind of invents the modern pet as we know it. And so it's really... it's really a 19th century phenomenon that that really starts in England and then picks up in France. It carries over to the United States. The United States becomes the ground zero for those pet cemeteries, not just because Americans have this crazy ambition in all things and commodity, also because when pet cemeteries start to become popular in the United States. It's this weird golden moment in American history. The first American pet cemetery is, 18, is uh, 1896. But they start to really grow around the end of the second decade of the 20th century. Now think about that, that's after World War I. So it's this right. golden age of American prosperity and they really start to grow up until, of course, 1929, which is the Great Depression. But it's that, right. weird, golden, that weird first golden moment for the United States coming after World War One, being a major player on the, on the world stage, proving itself. Um, you know, the country becoming very extremely wealthy on an international scale for the first time. And there's and that's when pet cemeteries really start to hit. So it's t- to me, what I'm saying is it's really not a surprise that the United States has built more pet cemeteries than the rest of the world combined. First of all, that's just kind of the the way Americans are, but it's also when they hit is in the golden moment. And they kind of become ingrained in the American consciousness in this golden moment in American history. And they become, because of that, I think a very American thing.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. Now there's, I'm a huge fan of your Instagram page for all kinds of reasons. and I'm trying to remember recently you posted a photo series and it was of a ceremony of a pet that was lost. Was it in Thailand? Yeah. Weirdly that
3: disappeared because it had, someone had complained about it. It had been removed, what? which is weird. Cause I can post, you know, like a full on rotting corpse and that's okay. I don't know. I don't even question it anymore. The thing is if you, you get to a point where you have a certain number of Instagram followers, there's always going to be someone pissed off about something. There's haters. I like to say I like to say you're nobody till somebody hates you. <laughs> right, good, yeah. So you
2: know, it's like okay, it's <laughs> about and, and yeah. all
3: those, and I have traveled in Asia as part of the research for this Pet Cemetery book. And I've done several series of Buddhist animal funerals. And so those were, you know, those are already on my Instagram page for someone who wants I love to live and no one had complained about them. So whatever, I didn't get bent out of shape. Whatever, another one's gone.
0: But um, yeah. I thought that was, that series was beautiful because I didn't know that there was a Buddhist ceremony for yeah. animals. I didn't know that. It was gorgeous. Well, I, okay. It is
3: to to be specific. It's not, you know, cross Buddhism. You can't go to any Buddhist temple in the world and ask for, a, you know, a cemetery for a dead pet. But there, you know, the the beautiful thing about Buddhism, uh, especially as it's practiced in Thailand and in Asia, as opposed to uh, Christianity in the United States. There's no one particular orthodoxy. You know, you're kind of free to make of it as you will, as long as it's more about maintaining certain ethical principles than it is about, you know, swallowing the communion waiver, you know, certain, you know, certain very specific details. And so some Buddhist temples do have kind of an outreach program for animals. And there are a couple in Thailand. There's one I have visited several times that will um, offer animal funerals and to me, and this would also go into the pet cemetery because I think it's very meaningful because it kind of shows how having a ritual in place to say goodbye really, really helps, um, you know, find a level of closure and moving on for the person. And um, like I said, there's no orthodoxy. So I've seen several different ceremonies for animals, but Usually you'll have, you know, the owners will come with the body of the animal and it'll be laid out on a platform and surrounded by flowers and decorated with things however the family wants. A lot of times it'll be surrounded by its toys. And then a monk will come. Sometimes it'll be several monks. I mean, depending on the family and their needs, I've, I've seen so many monks on the little stage that, you know, they're practically falling off, you know, butting into each other. But, you know, <laughs> so it could be One monk or it can be five or six or ten monks, you know. And there, there will be an oration that is done, and you know, uh, kind of hymns and so forth. Um, uh, sometimes it you know, will attach it to the animal's body, and then it will run through everyone's hands to try to give this idea of the, you know, the attachment of all things. One, wow. thing, that, one thing that is very consistent is uh, pouring of water, and then pouring the water out into a tree. You know, metaphorically, it's almost kind of like you know, the life going back to nourish the earth anyway when all this is done everyone will come and say goodbye to the animal and there's a crematorium on site and so then you know the animal will come will go over to be pushed into the oven and oftentimes it's the owners themselves who will push the animal into the oven which i think is a very important detail you know because nowadays you know in in the united states we would get shut out of that if you take a pet right cremated, they're not going to let you in there no but i think i think it's actually great to have this option if the want it, to have the owners themselves push the animal into the fire, you know, to offer it. Well, to to see, for the for the owners to see the whole process. You right. know, the flame symbolizes this purification. There's no reason for this to be hidden. Anyway, and, and at that point, at the end, uh, it's really up to the owner. You know, they might, some of the owners will just say goodbye at that point and leave, and they don't want the ashes they right. don't need it some will take the ashes back with them um in some cases um the owners will take the ashes and go with the, the this temple i'm talking about is right on the river and so they'll go with the monks onto a boat and they'll kind of like and, and i've been able to go with them and it's a, it's a wonderful experience to go oh, out wow. and then you know take this thing with the ashes and you know tie it in tied in a little white sheet and just place it on the river and push it away and release the animal to the river so there are many different ways that can it can transpire, but you know the point to me is having that ritual in place. I think is just a, a really beautiful and, way of uh, helping. Yeah, and, people.
0: And, and I am just so sorry to to know that that was taken down because I found it to be just so amazingly beautiful. Um, and in- <laughs> i mean, I don't know what to tell you. I, you
3: know, um, I once. I once put up two pictures in one day. One was of this, you know, half naked girl with with hooks through her flesh who was doing a suspension. Oh, I've seen one that was, one. One was of a clown. Okay. The clown got taken down. Someone had complained about <laughs> the clown. Any you of know, the half-naked girl with hooks was okay. Well, do know, know, know. You but, know what but, I mean? I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't. Look, well, clowns, clowns,
0: clowns can be disturbing. Though. <laughs> uh, I agree
3: with that. I don't, you know, I don't really. I just, uh, well, I,
2: I it's, mean, it's, it's, it's a public be- service and it's
3: free. I don't really, I'm not going to complain about
0: it. Yeah, right. we'd love to post some of this on the website or the G-Stream. We're also going to... Make sure that we put a link to your Instagram as well as a link so people can buy these amazing books. That's funny. And yeah. Any, any
1: photographs you'd like to send us, we'll put up there. Yeah, well.
3: definitely, yeah,
0: definitely. You know, if you have any you want? Uh, well, if, if if I have any
3: that you want that are online, you're free to just take them. Or if there's some that Thank you need you. higher, right? Okay. Higher resolution versions of just just write to me.
0: And I yeah, and and money. yeah, and definitely, I think everyone should should follow your Instagram from the exploring that you do in the mines to uh, your weekend stories are my favorite. <laughs> I think, I, I think I told yeah. you that. Love the weekend stories because you always have something that's never been seen before. Well, I don't know that's never been seen before. Well, um, when you live in yeah. Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. I'm going to take a second just to ask you about this the Order of the Good Death that you're involved with. Are you still actively involved with it? And do you believe that we should parallel that with the way we do with our animals? Is that what you're going to do with yours? Have them naturally?
3: Well, okay. okay. First of all, the Order of the Good Death, um, actively involved. No one's ever been really active other than Caitlin, who founded it. I mean, it's not really. I think people see the name and they feel like it's, it it must be some kind of like secret society or something. Um, Mm -hmm. Basically Caitlin Doughty, who's an author on death, a popular New York times, bestselling author on, on death. And it's place in our society kind of created, um, her own group basically four people she felt were who were doing similar kinds of work but in different in different ways she kind of put it all together on a website called the Order of a Good Death which I think really uh, was a way for people to find you know people who are interested to find other people that they might right. learn from um no you know there are no secret meetings um you know there's no uh initiation ritual where you (laughs) you
1: you yeah i guess the way it's phrased
3: i i I, to be honest i i probably know less i i I probably know less than half of the people who are even in the order of the good death at this point i don't right Annoyance to it so so there's no real active to be Just like I say, it's really just kind of a resource for other people to like a philosophy.
2: Yeah, well,
3: other people to find people who are working in a similar vein and that they might want to follow and learn from. That's right,
0: right. Well, it has been so much fun talking to you. I can't thank (laughs) you enough for all of this. Yeah. It's awesome. I promise I will reorder a copy of The Empire of Death so I can okay. actually read it.
1: <laughs> Open it up. <laughs> I will look forward to speaking with you again after you release the the, the book on the cemeteries. That'll be great. I've really enjoyed this this moment with you in time. And, and, and it's, gr- it's great. Very fascinating person. And um, Yeah, your, thank your you so much. Your perceptions are, are, are very i love them i like the way you see things
0: yes so, all right well thank you so much for right. joining us okay all right goodbye guys
3: right. bye goodbye.
0: take care take bye care. Bye now.
3: Thank you.
0: on the next episode of the g stream we welcome musical artist tj hickey see you soon